Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to season two of Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and with each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. In this episode, we will rekindle some memories from the past, but mainly look forward as U.S. Biathlon prepares for the future. At the helm of high performance and athlete development are two stars who grew up together in the Olympic Village of Lake Placid, each going on to claim world championship medals in their careers. Lowell Bailey won his world championship gold in 2017 at Hochfilzen, Austria in the 20K individual. Today, he serves as director of high performance. Tim Burke took silver in 2013 at Novomesto in the 20K. He is now director of development and putting his own mark on the future stars of the sport. And today, Heartbeat is taking you to the Olympic Village of Lake Placid, New York. And with me, Tim Burke and Lowell Bailey. And guys, thanks a lot for joining us here on Heartbeat today. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for having us. So, I mean, just first of all, I know you guys have just returned from a great camp out in Utah at Soldier Hollow, the 2002 Olympic venue. Uh, Lowell, why don't you kick it off? I mean, how did that camp go for everybody? Yeah, it was a, it's a great camp every year. Uh, I should say most years. Uh, we weren't able to do it last year, um, but thankfully we were back in the saddle uh, this year. And what's great about it is uh, a lot of regional teams can join, um, so it's really a great chance for the, um, the bio, U.S. biathlon community to be around uh, the national team and for the national team to interface with them as well. Um, the other big thing that that happens at the Utah camp is uh, it's the conclusion of the uh, world cup and IBU cup trials. So we were able to do the last three of five races um, in, in Utah at the tail end of that camp and, uh, and select our uh, initial world cup and IBU cup teams off of those races. Tim, from a development perspective, pretty vital time for your guys. Yeah, actually, especially this year, it's a really great opportunity to be out there with the junior national team. Uh, this season, we have our youth and junior world championships in Soldier Hollow in February. So to get that uh, group of young athletes out there training on that venue, getting used to the course, getting used to the range, having the opportunity to participate in those World Cup and IBU Cup trials and get races there on that venue is uh yeah really really special for that group and i hope we'll uh give them give them a little advantage come february for world championships well i want to come back to the camp in a little bit and we can explore it a little more in detail and particularly those uh final time trial races on what was a snowy and wet weekend at soldier hollow but i want to explore have each of you explore a little bit your background you both grew up uh, in Lake Placid, Lowell, you moved there, and Tim, you were a little bit more of a native. Uh, and, and it was an amazing period. Uh, not only you two guys, but Billy DeMong, uh, Olympic champion in Nordic Combined, and a host of other athletes were growing up there. Tim, uh, you spent a little bit more time growing up there. Can you characterize what that culture was like growing up in Lake Placid? Yeah, uh, growing up in Lake Placid is uh, definitely a was I feel like a very special opportunity, especially for uh, kids who have Olympic aspirations. You know, everywhere you go around the town here, you're reminded of the Olympics, from the the speed skating oval to the ski jumps to the bobsled track to the biathlon venue. You're always uh, kind of faced with with uh, the Olympics from 1980, and I think every kid growing up here that's in these youth sports programs has an understanding that the Olympics is not just this, this far off thing. It's something that's achievable, something that's attainable for everyone. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to be one of those kids who grew up thinking that and it played out for me. Lowell, you moved to New York and eventually to Lake Placid. Uh, and how did that impact your sports participation at the time? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we moved to Old Forge, New York when I was very young, when I was four, and that's where I first got my start um, cross-country skiing. Um, Old Forge is even more rural than uh, than Lake Placid, so uh, there's not a whole lot to do in the winter other than get outside and, and do an outdoor sport. Um, and then, you know, when we moved to Lake Placid, uh, it really is uh, and was at the time you know, a place where a lot of different, um, winter sports intersect. And, um, I think one of my first experiences with Lake Placid was, uh, going to, a uh, what was called a future stars camp with, uh, that was put on by, uh, one of the regional coaches in New York, Roger Weston at the time. And, um, he brought a lot of kids from around the mid Atlantic region to Lake Placid to stay at the training center. And, um, I just, fell in love with the area and, um, and really just that Olympic, um, excitement that was still there, even in, you know, that would have been early nineties. Uh, so really, I think it's, you know, you talk to anyone who's from here, uh, who is involved in the Olympic movement and it's, it's part of the fabric of this, of this, uh, town and this area. So, uh, a lot of kids grow up in that, in that, on that path. Lowell, how did you make the transition to biathlon? What was it that initially spurred that on with you in addition to what you were already doing with cross-country skiing? I think uh, like a lot of young um, junior skiers, um, I, I started out really getting more and more serious about cross-country ski racing, um, eventually racing at junior nationals. And, um, and through the course of, of that experience, um, U.S. Biathlon invited me as well as Tim and, and a bunch of others of my generation um, to a kind of a, a talent ID camp um, again at the training center. And the thing that was great about it is uh, they had they had really talented coaches. Um, they had some 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 senior athletes there uh, who were able to kind of interface with with these. Uh, junior skiers. And again, it was just something that it was exciting to me. It was, I, I already loved cross country ski racing, but, um, you know, you added that element of, um, precision and, uh, and shooting and, you know, what's not, li- what's not to like. <laughs> Tim, how about you? What was your transition? Was it, uh, at the, it was at the same time as Lowell, right? Yeah, pretty similar, maybe a little bit earlier than Lowell, you know, uh, growing up here, I was into, into the youth ski league, into the Bill Koch ski league from a very young age, uh, and raced in cross country until I was about 12. And then I was in the, uh, the NICEF Nordic ski program here based out of Lake Placid. And we would be over at Mount Van Hovenberg training and had the opportunity to, to ski by the Bathon range and see different athletes out there training. And right away when I saw it, I was just immediately attracted to it, right. As a, a 12 year old boy, I thought, what could be better than uh, getting to ski around and to shoot at targets? So I was lucky enough to to give it a try when I was about twelve, and I was really hooked right from right from the very first time. So I kind of I would say I would I dabbled in it from the age of like twelve to sixteen, and at that time, around sixteen is when I started to take it a little bit more serious. When I joined uh, more kind of elite talent ID type camps, like what Lowell was talking about and never really turned back and never, uh, never imagined that I would compete for as, as long as I did, uh, when I started when I was just 12, but it was, uh, yeah, an incredible journey. Each of you eventually went on to win medals at the world championships and to become strong athletes on the IBU world cup tour. But with every elite athlete, there's kind of that moment or that period where you transition from the development phase up to the elite phase. And, you know, Tim, just to, if you could start out, was, was there any particular turning point or period that really helped you to make that jump from the junior ranks up to the world's elite? I think, believe it or not, maybe it sounds a little strange, but the real turning point for me was even a little bit later on in my career. You know, when I, when I was a junior athlete um, and making that transition to being a senior athlete and a World Cup athlete, my, my goal at that time was to make an Olympic team. That was it. I wanted to make one Olympic team, 
have that experience and figured at that time that I would be done with the sport. And after qualifying for the Olympic team in, in 2006, um, I feel like there at the games, I saw some potential in myself that maybe I didn't realize was there. And then immediately after the games is when that big change really happened for me. After 2006, there were a lot of changes in the program. Uh, the team brought on Pierre Nielsen as the new head coach. And I really, really clicked with Pear right away and decided, hey, let me stick this out for another four years. See what it's like to work with this coach who I think is, is really one of the best in the world. And right away from day one of working with Pear, you know, I, I knew he, he believed in me and he really made me believe in my, myself. And from that point on, I went from being someone who was content to participate in the World Cup to someone who wanted to be, really wanted to be and truly believed I could be one of the best. So when I look back at my career, that transition from 2006 to 2007 with the addition of Pear to the team was really clearly the biggest turning point in my career. That's a fascinating story. And Lowell, how about you? Was there a particular period or moment for you to make that big leap? Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> little bit different pathway to get to 2006. Um, but I, I have to say like, it's, a, you know, it's kind of a boring answer, but it's really mirrors kind of Tim's answer. I aspired to make an Olympic team. That was my sort of life goal. Um, and I, and I did do that in 2006. It was a great experience. Um, and with, the addition of pair and the and the changes within the organization really positive change um you know it really he was a really inspiring uh and to this day is a very inspiring coach it was really great to see what you know as an athlete when you put your mind to something and you have such great uh experienced support it's a really powerful combination you both eventually put it all together. You had great success uh, internationally. Tim, I want to go to you first in that medal moment. Uh, your silver coming in 2013 at Nova Mesto in the 20K. Uh, what, what was it on that day that clicked for you to put you up on the medal stand? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Leading into that World Championships, I remember I had a, a, a great season going, and I had uh, a podium performance on the World Cup not too long before the World Championships, I had a, a great training camp leading up to World Champs. And I remember going into those to those World Championships in Nova Mesto thinking that I was I was poised to to uh, really have a top a top result. I went there totally confident, thought it was gonna happen, and completely flopped in my first few races <laughs> and was really was really surprised. I remember after their pursuit, you know, nearly being in tears, just could not understand why I felt so flat, why I wasn't hitting targets. And again, uh, this will probably be a reoccurring theme in the in this podcast. But coming back to Pear and the the great coach he was, I remember him just sitting me down and telling me, uh, you know, you've got enough, you've got one more opportunity here, and just go out there and and focus on the things that you can control. You've had a great year. You've had a great camp. It's there. I don't know why it hasn't showed up yet here at world champs, but it is there. And, uh, the next day I went out and, and followed his plan and just tried to really focus on my, on myself and, uh, things turned out and definitely one of my more memorable races in my career. I know this is a cliche question, but how did that feel when you crossed the finish and you eventually knew that you'd won that silver medal? You know, what was the feeling of satisfaction? What were the things and the memories that went through your mind then? That's a really interesting question. And I think my answer will maybe surprise some people. When it first happened, it felt incredibly normal. And it felt incredibly normal because I had run through that in my mind so many times. And I really believed that that was the level that I had. I knew that I didn't need to do anything special. I just needed to do the things that I did every day in practice. Now, with that said, there's probably 30 people starting that race who are in that exact same boat. Um, but I, I believed it. I thought about it. I visualized it. When it actually happened, my initial reaction was, yeah, this is, 
this is where I, I should be. Of course, after that initial reaction, you know, things really, uh, you have more time to reflect on it. And it's certainly an emotional time. And I was, was obviously thrilled, especially considering how, how poorly my previous world championship races had gone leading up to that, that day. Uh, but when it first happened, it was, it was something that I had already run through in my mind so many times that I felt like, I felt like it was, uh, just meant to be. Lowell, you also won your gold medal in 2017 in the 20 K. What were your expectations coming into that day? You know, I, I think, um, a lot of what I worked on, um, with pair and, um, with Sean, Sean McCann, who was the, is still the sports psychologist for the team. When you think about it, you can only do what you can do. <laughs> you can't control the rest of the field. And, um, a lot of times when athletes miss their goals, it's because they get distracted and they aren't able to focus and execute the skills that they actually, you know, have trained and know how to do. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for that race and, and that race series, I just really tried to um, stay with my own focus and not worry about what the results would be. Um, so I think for, for that particular race expectations wise, um, I knew I was in decent ski shape and I had a good plan for the shooting. I felt good on that range and really that's all I went into the race with in terms of expectations. I didn't go into the race putting that type of, um, I think I never found that that type of pressure helped me to go into a race and say, if I perform really well today, I could win a medal. Um, I feel like it's not that I ever went to that place, but <laughs> what I found is anytime I did go to that place, um, things never really turned out well. My best races were always ones where I was just focusing on the process and not worrying about what the result would be. What was your feeling during the race? Did you have a sense of where your performance was on that day? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I was, um, one of the last, I think I was second to last, um, bib number. So I did know, um, especially towards the end of the race, kind of where, where things were playing out. I didn't know what place I was in specifically. I just knew I was having a good race. Um, and I didn't really know it. Um, our staff did a really good job of just maintaining good, positive support throughout the race, but not really putting too much pressure on. Um, but definitely going out onto the last lap because I was one of the last starters, everything was, you know, everything was written except that last lap. So I knew where I was. I knew what the, um, what the gaps were, uh, who I was around, how close it was, all of that stuff after the last shooting. You became a world champion for U.S. biathlon. And as you thought back, much as I talked about with Tim, as you thought back on your career with that gold medal in hand uh, at the awards ceremony, were there any memories or thoughts from your past that came back to you? I think the biggest thing is more of a general feeling of just how many people help an athlete reach their goals. Um, I know that may sound cliche. But to see, I think being on the other, the other side, so to speak now, um, being on the admin side and helping athletes reach their goals and helping manage a team, you do share in the success of athletes. And um, I think what I felt at the time was just how amazing the support that I had going through um, not only that, you know, that small point in time, that race, that race day. Uh, but really just throughout my whole career being a U.S. biathlete, just the level of um, support and attention, coaching, um, ski preparation. I mean, um, I, I know to this day uh, that that was a huge part of my ability to, to succeed. The two of you now are in a role to help other athletes. Lowell, you are the director of high performance, and Tim, director of athlete development. Lowell, if you could kick it off and 
talk a little bit more about what your role is as the director of high performance and how you impact the future of so many athletes here in the United States. Yeah, so the high performance director position is really um it's a <laughs> it's a a little of a lot of things. So, um it's uh some team management and logistics. Uh it's also some um strategic planning and and um looking towards the future, what's what's going well, where can we re- where can we improve and how can we do that? Um and then there's uh really the we have a really talented and dedicated staff um at at all levels really but for my part i pretty much work with the the world cup and ibu cup staff um so that's that's a little bit about my position tim how about you on the development side yeah so i'm currently the the director of athlete development and it's it's funny right working for us biathlon we're we're a small organization so everyone has these different titles, but everyone does a little bit of everything. You know, you, you need in a position like I'm in, I'm part-time wax tech on the winter when I'm traveling with groups to, to coaching, to even helping out sometimes with uh, national team camps. But of course, my focus is in development. And I think right now, uh, it's an especially exciting time in U.S. biathlon because we're really putting a lot more focus in development. In the past, it's something we've always wanted to commit to, but we've been more or less solely focused on our high-performance World Cup and Olympic teams. Now, we've definitely taken a more long-term approach to developing Bathon and realized that if we really want those top, consistent performances at the highest level, we need to start focusing a little bit further down the pipeline. So it's been a lot of fun for me to go go from being a, a World Cup athlete to helping those athletes that are just getting started. I feel like, I feel like in, in my career, I certainly made plenty of mistakes, uh, but I was fortunate enough to work with some really great people. And it's just a lot of fun for me now to be able to, to take those experiences, to, to learn from those mistakes I've made, to think about what all I learned from these great people I've worked with and apply that to our next generations, next generation of athletes coming forward. Development is a long process, I know, and you've been in this role for only a few years now, but are you, are you starting to see a, a bit of a shift? Do you, do you have a greater comfort level now that you're a couple of years into the role that we have a good future with the, the athletes who are in the development pipeline now? Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, I've only, I've only been in this role for a few years, but we've already made some, some good changes that we're seeing results from already. I think the biggest example of that is the restart of the junior national team. Uh, when I when I came on after 2018, there was no junior national team for U.S. biathlon, and we've since restarted that. And that program has allowed our best young developing athletes to have quite a bit more support. We, with that program, have you know multiple training camps throughout the year. They have uh, a dedicated resource and a coach, which at this time is me. Um, and with that program, I feel like we've been able to bring along some of these athletes who would have been more or less on their own without that program. So we've seen some people come through like, uh, Avashek Cervenka is a, a great example. Avashek is an athlete that I've worked with for the past few years on the junior national team. And he was able to make a, a pretty smooth transition now onto the senior national team. Uh, I think that that program with the juniors is really important in making sure that that happens. We've also had some success at you know youth and junior world championships in 2019. We had uh, a bronze medal from Maxime Germain, who was a junior national team member. So I think results like that also <clears throat> really help uh, show how important this this program is. And it's just the start for sure. I realize. Everyone at USBA realizes we need to do more. It's not just about creating a junior national team. We need to do more further down the pipeline, and we've got plans uh, plans to make that happen. And look forward to to rolling out some new programs as well, starting uh, as early as next spring. We're going to dive into vision and some of the programs for the future in just a little bit. But one that I want to highlight, if you could speak to it, Tim, is the Youth and Junior World Championships are coming to America this year. 
uh, taking place in late February, early March out at Soldier Hollow, just from a motivational standpoint for America to get to see the top junior biathletes in the world. How important is this event at Soldier Hollow coming up later this season? Yeah, having youth and junior world champs in Soho in February, I think is just a great opportunity for U.S. biathlon on many different levels. For one, it's a great opportunity for our athletes that will be competing there. All of our athletes who will compete there uh, in February will have competed there before, to, one, to try out for the team, but a lot of them have been competing there for years. So they know those courses well. They know the range. They're not going to have to deal with jet lag. Um, they're not going to have to deal with long travel. So it really should set them up and be a good opportunity for them to really have their own personal best results there. But on, a, on the other side of things, I think it's, it's important for U.S. Bathlon because I really hope that it will be uh, an event that will inspire a lot of youth biathletes who have the opportunity to come out and uh, just watch and spectate this event. It's a big event. You know, there's two different age classes. I think it's somewhere around 400 athletes there competing. So I'm very, very confident that if we get kids out to watch this event, to experience this event, they will feel that excitement and it'll be something that they're going to want to take part in in the future. And I really hope that we can use that then to uh, help help grow the sport, um, especially in that Utah area where there's clearly uh, a lot of potential. Lowell, I want to dive back into the camp at Soldier Hollow. Uh, this is an Olympic year. We're coming out of a COVID period where there was dramatic disruption in how you can get together as a team and train as a team with athletes and coaches. Was this camp at Soldier Hollow this past few weeks, was that even more vital than in the past, given all those circumstances? Yeah, I think um, throughout this this year, um, you know, I I guess even going back to last year, what we learned coming out of last season, um, I think what we all learned, athletes and staff, was um, initially when we saw the COVID restrictions and we saw that we weren't going to be able to run centralized um, training, you know, in those centralized camp environments that we um, had grown to uh, rely on, we thought, okay, we have really good regional centers, athletes can stay at home. We have great uh, coaches. We have great training plans. They'll be able to execute those training plans with the help of their regional coaches. And we felt pretty confident in that plan. Um, and I think it went reasonably well, but definitely um, overall the feedback overwhelmingly from the athletes and from, from coaches, from national team coaches was, geez, we really underestimated um, what it means to be in a training camp environment. Just you, you can't recreate that in any other way. So this year, um, right off the bat, uh, we, we were able to bring the team together, um, to have training camps every month. Um, and I think that has really benefited the team and they've really appreciated that head to head, um, opportunity to um to push each other in training. So Utah was sort of the the final camp of the training period um before heading over to Europe and doing the sort of preseason fine tuning and it was you know it was a great camp um concluding with three great uh great races roller ski races. So I think everyone left Utah with a pretty positive um feeling and ready to ready to hit the road for the season. The other thing that struck me at the camp was you had pretty much everything going there. You had a full complement of coaches. You had sports psychology support. You had organizational leadership. You had the trustees there. You had spectators. You had weather diversity. So you, and you had news media there. You pretty much threw everything at the athletes for those last few races. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we had, again, I, I love Utah because it is sort of uh, an intersection of a lot of different um, U.S. biathlon uh, groups. And so uh, we had some trustees there to interface with the athletes. We were able to do uh, 
an athlete awards um, reception, which we had to cancel all last year. Um, so we were able to recognize some of the achievements that our athletes achieved last season. And that was really nice for, you know, a, a lot of the board members, um, you know, they've been, they've been devoting time and volunteering their efforts remotely for, you know, more than a year now. And I think it was really nice for them to see the athletes in person and see the reason that they're, they're volunteering their time and, and being so generous with their, with their efforts. Um, so just a great chance for a lot of different parts of the U S biathlon community to, to, uh, to see each other. Beijing is definitely a challenge. It's a challenge, not just for biathlon, but for all sports, because essentially no one's been there. No one's been on the venues. I think you do have a plan now to get some coaches and technicians on the snow there to get a sense of what it's like. Lowell, what's the, what's the plan uh, as we head into the Olympics less than a hundred days away? Yeah. So we'll have our technicians on the ground, uh, at the end of December. Um, they'll be predominantly, um, testing grinds that we've developed knowing the different weather trends in Beijing. Um, that is to say stone grinds, um, also testing. Uh, one of the other challenges we have this year is, uh, we have a sort of half of a non-fluoro ban um, for ski wax. So some fluoros are allowed, some are not. So we've had to adjust our um, waxing protocols and testing regime. Um, so we'll be doing a lot of wax testing, a lot of uh, stone grind testing. And it's a really um, intense period of time. You know, it's you have basically four days to uh, to really maximize our efforts on the venue. But feeling good about that. We've just finalized our our shipping um, for our stone grinder. So our stone grinder will be on the high seas here in the next week, headed to Beijing, and we'll have that on site for the Olympics. Um, so we're preparing as best we can, but it is, as you said, um, Beijing has been really closed off. And so um, no athletes will see the venue until they get to the Olympics. Um, so that's a big challenge for everyone, but I think we as Team USA are used to being flexible. We're used to traveling to foreign places. I think overall, it's going to be a competitive advantage for us. As we sit here in early November, Lowell, where do we stand with U.S. team selection for Beijing? Who's qualified now? And what are the next steps for the athletes who have yet to make the team? Yeah, um, so we have two pre-qualified athletes, uh, Susan Dunkley, Claire Egan, uh, based on their results from last season, they met the pre-qualification markers. And then the rest of the team is still open. Um, and it will be a, a series of um, selections that occur throughout the beginning of this season. Um, and so as we go through the, through the season, there will be points where we select more and fill out more of the roster of, uh, of each Olympic team. Uh, and then We'll have the final spots on the roster. Um, those will be named in early January. So we'll know the, the complete Olympic team at that point. Do you know about how many men and women you will have in Beijing? Is your quota number fixed? Our quota number, uh, for all intents and purposes, is fixed. It, it got a little bit um, revised. The, the policies that govern that quota system have been revised due to COVID. But um, for all intents and purposes, we have uh, four men and four women as our, as our quota for Beijing. Just looking at the Olympics from a global perspective, uh, and either one of you chime in on this, but uh, who should we be looking for internationally outside of the U.S. as potential stars of the Games? Any thoughts? I mean, Tim, do you have any thoughts on who we want to watch uh, when we get to Beijing outside of the USA? You will see the the normal kind of biathlon superpowers, if you will, who are clearly clearly the ones to watch. And for that, you know, you obviously have the the Norwegian team, both on the men's and women's side, are very very strong. They've showed that last year, the last few years. Um, the French team as well. Uh, they've got multiple athletes, both men and women, that are capable of stepping up on the podium. So I definitely expect to see strong results from them as well. The Italians, I think, are kind of a, a dark horse. Obviously, with with Doro, she's 
Dorovir, she's not a dark horse, uh, but the rest of the team there, they always seem to pull it off at the Olympics and get multiple Olympic medals. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them them do it again. For me, I think what's really exciting about the Olympics, every biathlon Olympics that I have taken part in or watched, you always see at least one or two athletes stepping onto the podium who no one would have predicted before the games. I think that's one of the things that makes you know biathlon so exciting, which makes biathlon in the Olympics even more exciting. And I expect to see that happen again in Beijing. Who those athletes are, who knows? But hopefully, it's one of ours. Yep, and that's. Uh, I think that's one of the things that, uh, as you said, biathlon is so diverse; it's so ever changing. You just never know what's going to happen on any given day. Uh, I want to look to the future now and talk about vision. Uh, I know that you have developed a long-term strategic plan that was presented last month to the Board of Trustees. Lowell, can you walk us through a little bit and some of the visionary thoughts that that you have uh, for athletic performance, athletic development over the next few years at USBA? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, this strategic plan is a long-term plan all the way through with really 2030 as the, as the target. Um, so we're really talking uh, an extended time frame. Um, and it was the really the thinking on this started actually a couple of years ago. And um, this is sort of the, the outcome of, of those efforts. Um, and really it hinges on this idea of looking at what some of the successful countries of our scale, um, what they're doing. And, and I say scale because um, there's just certain cultures like Norway that have um, their numbers are staggering. They've, they have a really um, established biathlon culture in that country. Um, we're somewhere in the middle and we've come a long way, but we want to move, uh, we want to move that needle more towards the established biathlon culture side. So to that end, um, a lot of the, a lot of the planning is how do you, how do you build out, how do you flesh out certain parts of our development pipeline, um, so that, a, an athlete can enter our development pipeline at a variety of different stages and, um, and progress through to the national team in a consistent way. Uh, so that's really the, you know, I guess the, the essential part of it is looking at, um, really all aspects of how an athlete goes from, um, you know, just starting out in biathlon to being a high performer and, uh, a, you know, competitive on the international circuit. And I guess in terms of vision, uh, really the, the vision, the goal is that we have um, consistent success on the world stage um, by multiple athletes. So we don't want to be, I think we, we came from a place where we had little or no success or maybe success every five or six years um, to now in the recent past, uh, recent history, that is, you know, we've seen medals, um, you know, periodically, but consistently um, throughout each season. And where we want to go with that is just to continue that progression so that we're in a place where we're, uh, you know, we're on a podium consistently and it's not just one athlete that's on a podium that it's a variety of different athletes because that's that's where you achieve consistent sustainable success as a as a biathlon country one of the elements that really struck me in the plan was the growth of the base the growth of the community and the clubs and uh, we certainly are familiar with what has happened at a number of great uh, local club programs uh uh, Craftsbury comes to mind, uh, Crosscut up in Bozeman, uh, here in Utah. I, you know, what's happening at Soldier Hollow is fascinating. Uh, Tim, can you talk about the importance of growing more clubs and, and looking for ways to get biathlon programs into more communities across America? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. I think to, to best answer that question, we have to look, uh, look at what we've done in the past. So right now with U.S. Biathlon in the past, we have we've not really had contact 
to a lot of these athletes until they're about 16 years old. So until they're kind of making their first youth world championship teams, we're not really very involved on the national level. And we feel very strongly at U.S. Biathlon that to have the success and to grow our base and to grow our clubs, that needs to change. So we really need to provide better resources right from the get-go. And a big part of that is going to be not only helping our existing clubs, but helping to grow and start new clubs all around the country. Um, We feel like if we can do that, that we can also create a lot more competitive opportunities for kids at these clubs. You know, kids that end up excelling in biathlon and doing well, these are kids that want to compete. They want to, they want to race their friends. They, they want to challenge themselves. And if they're the only club within a couple hundred miles, it can be tough to do that. Uh, by increasing clubs and increasing those competition opportunities, I think we will attract more kids and also retain more talent. Uh, so that's just kind of one, one piece of the puzzle, but also having more contact with the U S biathlon community further up the pipeline as well. Um, just having more of a national presence at regional training camps, having coaches that are strongly aligned with U S biathlon training principles and philosophy in all of the regions. These are some of the uh, real keys we see to to bring a U.S. biathlon forward, and to as as to Lowell's point, to providing more consistent results at that top level year in and year out. Just one more thing before we move on to our final section of the podcast called On Target, uh, Lowell. Just to go back to you, uh, you you guys are in the athletic realm, but it only works for you in athletics if you have that support. You have the financial support and also the moral support of the country behind you. U.S. Biathlon has become more creative, it seems, in the last few years in figuring out how to uh, achieve more resources. How important is it to have that support and to have a collective community behind you to help fund these athletic endeavors? I mean, it's it's essential. It you can't you can't do it without uh, financial support. And so, um, you know, I I really appreciate. And I think the athletes really appreciate the level of support that U.S. Biathlon has now. Um, I, I really feel like it's something, you know, we've never had such um, such good support uh, from a variety of, of different places. And like you said, um, you know, the word creative comes to mind because there's a lot of different entities that are um, that are behind us right now. Um, Everything from our team corporate sponsors, our apparel, you know, our, our look right now is, is awesome with Maloya. Um, so the athletes are, are well clothed and they, they look good when they're out on the international field of play. Um, and then on the other side, on the, on the private donorship side, we have just, you know, we have donors that, that donate, you know, 50 bucks and we have uh, a board of trustees that's really pounding the pavement, knocking on every door, um, and, and garnering support, uh, you know, in a lot of different places. So what's great about that is, um, you know, it's great when someone writes a check for, for us biathlon, that really, really helps. But what I'm witnessing is a lot of those people that may not have even heard of biathlon that, that are, are writing those checks are simultaneously becoming biathlon fans. And um, it's it's really cool to see that happen and to see that momentum build. You know, I'm going to add in one more. Uh, Aaron's the uh, snowblower company that is uh, a big sponsor of U.S. Biathlons, located in a small community of Brilliant uh, in uh, East Central Wisconsin. And they are so motivated right now that they're actually looking to build a little cross-country ski area and a biathlon range for the benefit of their community and the region. So it's really fun to see how these partners with U.S. Biathlon have not only written a check to support the athletes, but really become engaged in the sport. I want to move on now to our final section. It is called On Target. I'm going to hit you each with a couple of what I hope will be simple and thought-provoking questions at the same time. So to kick it off, uh, the proverbial question I ask everyone on Heartbeat, what is your favorite biathlon venue? 
Uh, Tim, why don't you start it off? What's your favorite biathlon venue? My favorite biathlon venue was Antolts, Italy. It's uh, a beautiful venue situated right up in the mountains. Typically, when we were there, the weather was nice, the crowds were big, and the food was Italian. So it was uh, tough to beat. It is a great spot. And it is it is the majority choice of most of the guests here on Heartbeat. Lowell, how about you? Boy, that's a tough one. I, I think uh, in terms of um, sort of my my race results, I'd have to go with Hochfilzen in Austria. Um, but I also, if I can sort of break the mold, I, I would have two. One would be Hochfilzen, the other would be Oslo. Um, the home and coal venue there. It's just the, the history that you feel when you walk onto that venue is amazing. And, you know, sitting on top of the city of Oslo, it's just, there's no other biathlon venue like it. No, that is a really good one. I've been there many times and it is just a spectacular experience. Uh, let's go on now to the most memorable experience or maybe the best memory that you have of your career. Tim, your best memory. I think, uh, yeah, it's an easier one for me. My most memorable experience was putting on the yellow bed. Absolutely. In 2009, you were, in fact, I think you're the only American to have led the World Cup. Uh, So tell us about the experience on that day and what that meant to have the yellow bib pulled over your head. Yeah, that that one was a different uh, different experience than what I explained for my World Championships medal in that I don't think I expected that to happen, especially when it happened. Um, for sure, it's something that every athlete dreams of. Uh, but I didn't go into the season, you know, thinking I would be wearing the yellow bib at any point. So when that all came together, it really was a a pretty big surprise for me, um, which made it, uh, yeah, definitely an emotional experience that uh, that really stands out to me in my long career. Do you still have the yellow bib? I do. Yes, I do. Somewhere. I'm not, it's in my house somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Lowell, how about you? What your memory? Yeah, I mean, I, I have so many great memories um, from competing, but also training and just the, you know, the, the traveling circus that is biathlon. Um, I think w- one of the memories that will always uh, stick with me is the sort of the the feeling of coming around the the turn in Hopefieldson after hitting the last shot at uh at the in the individual there and the moment I knew just where I was in the race it's one of those like memories that's kind of etched in your brain I can picture the where the crowd was how the sunlight was all of that stuff it's like a it's like a painting that's there I love the way you described that. Uh, we're going to get probably a little bit more challenging here, but I'd like each of you to think about one thing that you'd like to see to help grow biathlon in America. It doesn't have to be the only thing or the best thing, but just what's one thing, Tim, to start it out? What's one thing that you'd like to see to help grow biathlon here in, in the United States? One thing. That's, it's tough to pinpoint one thing. Um, well, you can pick anything. I, I would say more TV exposure because... It really is such an incredible sport to watch as a fan that I really believe if if kids were able to turn on the TV and see biathlon, the sport would grow very, very fast here in the U.S. That's a good one. Lowell, can you top that? I can't top it, but I, I'll add uh, something else. Um, so the IBU uh, has a new initiative where they're trying to um, support new ways of, uh, of bringing elite athletes together in competition. And one of the ideas is to have a, a, an international circuit, um, that takes place in different regions of the world and one being North America. So I think one great, great way would be if, um, international competitors of a high level came and did, um, that type of circuit in America so that it was more visible and you had high level athletes um, competing in multiple venues around the the U S and Canada. Yeah. I I love that idea. You can totally see how that could impact kids, particularly in a country like this, where we're removed from the core of where most competitions take place. So for the last question, and I know this, this challenges everyone, 
If you could say in one word, what does biathlon mean to you? Tim, in one word, what does biathlon mean to you? Ooh, that is a tough one. <laughs> to me, just the one word that comes up, if, when I just think biathlon, it's thrilling. From the athlete standpoint, to the fan standpoint, you just never know what's going to happen. It truly is thrilling. Lowell, one word. I, I think about, so, so Tim's coming at it as like, what's the viewer or what's the spectator or someone looking at it experiencing? And I totally agree with that term. Um, the word that comes to mind is thinking of it through the lens of like, uh, really, I guess the athlete, but, uh, the word commitment is the word that comes to mind. And I know that may seem odd, but I, I see the value that that word has had in my life, um, as an athlete, um, when I really committed to the sport and committed to a coach and that coach was committed to me and an organization was committed to me, um, just the power of all that. And so, um, to me, it's a really positive term and, and um, a really powerful, powerful term that you see any success you see in biathlon. Um, if you look behind that success, typically there's a lot of commitment. Well, I love that thrilling and commitment. Two great words. Tim Burke and Laurel Bailey, thank you for joining us on Heartbeat. Thanks for having us, Tom. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to Director of High Performance Lowell Bailey and Director of Athlete Development Tim Burke from U.S. Biathlon here on Heartbeat. Both of them world championship medalists and helping to carve the future for biathlon in America. If you've enjoyed listening to Heartbeat, please subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to having you join us on many future episodes. For all of us at U.S. Biathlon, I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Heartbeat. We'll see you soon.